Blog Talk Radio. Well, hey guys, it's me. The weekend's over with, and why do I keep feeling like I want to say it's Monday? Probably because it feels like a Monday to 90% of us, isn't that right? Hey folks, it's me. Thanks so much for listening and tuning in. I hope you guys had an absolutely lovely, long Labor Day weekend. I know that I did. In fact, it was probably too long because I kind of got a little too lazy, but here we are today, and I'm so excited. I don't want to spend too much time talking because I know that my guest today is absolutely phenomenal, and I want to give her as much time as possible. So quick reminder to everybody before we start the show, obviously to those of you who are on my wall today and on my show page, you know that... Um, Sari Singer is going to be coming on in about two seconds. We're going to be talking to her today. Reminder to everybody tomorrow, my guest will be Tony Chen. Tony Chen of Tony Chen Music, who is a threefold talent, meaning that he was self-taught at the age of 17 to play the keyboards. He does voiceover music, and he does music compositions that have earned him not only nominations for an Oscar, but also numerous different independent music awards, and I'm so fascinated to talk about his work with Disney. And I want to remind everybody on Thursday, Nikki Nerodin comes on the show. Nikki happens to be with a group called Nikki and the Human Element. What I love about Nikki is not only is she a threefold talent, meaning that she can sing, she can also play the guitar, but she helps to keep the, uh, the the homeless in New York City not only sheltered, but of course safe, and of course with clothing and food. And I can't speak enough about her. She is a dear friend of mine, and I'm so fortunate to know her. So please get a chance. If you can tune into one show, great. Two even better. Three would be absolutely phenomenal. So without further ado, I will stop talking, and let's get Siri on the line and start speaking. I can't wait to talk to her. Good morning, or should I say good afternoon, dear? Yeah, hi. How are you? I'm nervous. Um, anytime a big deal comes on my show, I get petrified, and I'm completely petrified of you <laughs> in the best way possible. I, Meaning, I have no idea why. I'm not a big deal. <laughs> um, no, really, you're such a big deal. And in the next 45 minutes, you're going to find out why. And actually, I hope to my listening audience, they will treasure you and your experiences as much as I do. Um, people that I consider to be survivors, which you clearly are, are not only impressive in their own right, but you have gone a step further or 10 steps further to try to help the work in the lives of other human beings. That's what makes you exceptional right off the bat. Um, but we're going to get into some of that. So um, I want the whole entire audience to know your background and a little bit of where you came from and how you got to where you are now, if that's okay with you. Sure, <clears throat> absolutely. Um, first of all, uh, I have to ask you because I know you're a New Jersey native and I'm going to be a New York native in about five years. So I need a little bit of advice because I know you're from New Jersey. I'm on a the coin toss-up, because I, I'm not sure how long you lived in New Jersey, because I know you came from there originally. New York versus New Jersey, what's great about New Jersey? Should I live in New Jersey, or should I live in New York City? I'm like, that's a great question to ask her, because I don't live there yet. So <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out. So help a girl out, will ya? It depends where you want to live. Um, the city is always awake and alive, and there's always something to do. But there's something to be right. said for a little bit of a, oh, out of the city. Uh, Jersey City, Hoboken is beautiful. Um, oh, yeah. The communities there are really flourishing, and North Jersey is great. I wouldn't suggest South Jersey, which is where I'm from. It's too far from the city. Oh. But I was I oh, in the okay. city right now, so... I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay, good. All right. Well, thank you for clearing that up because I'm petrified. <laughs> I mean, the city just eats me up. I mean, you know what it's like going to New York, right? You're like, oh my God, these people petrify me. It's scary and they're ready to run me over. I love the city to pieces, but it's like, yeah, I have that fear thing going big time. Usually big time. <laughs> petrified. So I'm like, thank you for making You'll me You'll get over it very fast when you move here. Uh, that's what <laughs> I hear. <laughs> and actually, I was wondering, listening to your voice, you don't have that typical... You know what it's like when you meet people from Jersey and they have that accent, you know, that thick accent or maybe an Italian accent. You don't sound like you're an accent at all. You almost sound like me, like a Midwesterner. How is that possible? Um, 
I, well, first of all, I lived overseas for three years, and I also had friends in different places, and I think I probably just, you know, kind of blend in with everyone else's accents. But, yeah, I don't oh, I would agree with you. The accent. <laughs> That's awesome. I absolutely love it. It's very cool. Okay. So now before we get on to the fabulous organization you founded in your backstory, et cetera, I wanted to talk a bit about, because I know you have a day job and you work in career services. I have a lot of individuals, especially a I have a millennial crowd, so we have a bit of a younger audience as well as an older, older audience today. So here's my question. Fantastic. Because we live, we live in 2017, so clearly, obviously, the, the rules and regs and the, and the means for being impressive and intellectually sound and stable in the world of getting a job. Let's talk a bit about that. Career services, if you're younger and you're listening in, or maybe even someone that's older that wants to reenter the job force, any good recommendations or things you could pass along to them in terms of um, – taking that career path in a positive direction? I mean, I think the most important thing is to have a professional resume. That's your marketing tool. It gets you in the door, but then eventually you need to sell yourself. And I think sometimes people are afraid of selling themselves too much to employers. But I think that especially if you're a millennial and you're entering the workforce, you want to showcase everything you have to offer. And if you're somebody who's going back into the workforce or changing careers, you really want to let them know that, you know, what you bring to the table. So that way they can say, wow, this is somebody I want a part of my team. Because I think that we, we don't value enough this idea that we need to really put forward and interview all the things. Um, that really sets us apart from somebody else without coming across in a arrogant or egotistical way, but just let her know why you would be the best person uh, for their for their company. I think that starts with a really uh, polished resume and also dressing mm-hmm. the part for an interview. You know, uh, we you have you have seconds to make that first impression, and even though you might not be dressing in a suit to an interview, I recommend either a suit or a blazer. Um, to any interview you go to because you want to make the best impression uh, when you first meet somebody and coming in professionally dressed with a professional resume just puts you way above some other people that might be applying to the same position. Nice, very nice. And we don't want to forget to mention the obvious because this comes up a lot. We live in an age nowadays with the new generation, of course, where there's technological this, that, and the other thing. How important is it to utilize how far do we take the social media aspect to try to pursue something in an employment perspective? Are you finding people well, almost? I think everybody in, in the career world should have a LinkedIn account. If you don't, you need to have one because that's a professional networking site. But I think when it comes to social media, and it's very dangerous because whatever out there stays there. But I always say to my <laughs> students, if it's something you wouldn't want your parents to see, you shouldn't be posting <laughs> Um, Amen to that. So that's really, I think that employers can check you out on social media and they don't want to see, they don't want to see, you know, things that, you know, you wouldn't want your parents to see. So I always tell them, keep that in mind right. when you're posting things. And I do that for myself as well. Um, I right. post only things that I think that if somebody's going to try and, and catch me on them, that I can stand by what I'm posting. Gotcha. No, I understand completely. I do. And, and obviously, <laughs> of course, like you're saying, you need to utilize every single aspect of yourself, meaning the few marketing tools that you have in those few moments that you walk into a room, it's vitally important. You can sell yourself, but that piece of paper is almost just as important. It's another representation of you. So we get that one. Exactly. Um, your father is a state senator, so I'm kind of like bowing down to the ground like, oh, my God, now she has a dad that's in politics. Is that really cool for you, or is it kind of like, because I've talked to other people who have relatives that work in politics or are or, or influential, et cetera, um, and sometimes it can be a bit um, like, does everybody expect you to be in politics? You know what I mean? Like you're kind of following in dad's footsteps, yeah. et cetera. 
Oh, no. Sorry. Um, I really, I really <laughs> no, no, no. I really don't like politics. Um, and Ooh. probably why I went to, to a different direction. I mean, I grew up in it. It's, you know, almost my whole life he's been in politics. And I, I love him and respect him, but I don't agree with everything. Um, and I, I think that politics is, is just a, a very cutthroat and, and difficult arena to be in. Um, and for me, it's really hard because I'm sort of a what you see is what you get. And I say right. what I think within a respectful way, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't necessarily side with the party lines versus who I think is the better candidate and the better person to represent. And uh, I just, I think that when I was younger, it was really cool. You know, uh, it, it, back then it, there wasn't social media. So we were on the campaign trail and going, you know, door to door and my dad speaking at places. That was fun. But I think as I got gotten older and I see other things that are going on in the world, um, my passions have taken me towards uh, a different realm within the political realm, but not really within the politics, but really helping victims. Um, have a voice and, and advocating for what they need long-term after what they've been through. And that to me is, is just so important. Right. No. And I agree with you 150%. Although um, we do want to mention something, of course, about your father, your dad is obviously state Senator Robert Singer. So um, because we, I've heard of him, not maybe, maybe everybody who's listening in, we have a nice size New Jersey and New York city base. So is there anything you want um, the listening audience to know about your father or anything that he's working on or anything we should be aware of just off the top of your head? I mean, I think that, you know, he's, he's, he's a self-made man and he really, um, you know, when he got into politics, he wanted to do it to help people. And I think that that's reflective of a lot of the legislation and the, and the bills that he really puts himself behind in terms of, you know, dealing with education and, and, and even long-term education with college students and stuff going on in New Jersey. And I think he just really wants to, you know, to be there to support and to do. Um, and I don't think that, I think that while many politicians go in idealistic, they don't always end up staying that way. And I think that for him, you know, I, I respect everything he's done. And I think that, you know, it's reflective that, uh, that he's been in office this long, that people, you know, that his constituents really agree with what he's doing and wanting to uh, help out and, and really be a voice for them. And that's what I think every politician should be, a voice for the constituents for what they want. Um, Amen to so that yeah. one. Okay. <laughs> I agree with you there, certainly. And, of course, obviously, folks, I'll be able to, towards the end of the interview or at the interview, because I know we have limited time, I'll be sure to go ahead and give you um, all of our listening audience an opportunity to figure out where you can find him on social media and otherwise, because there are definitely some things that he's initiated that people should be aware of um, that obviously we Absolutely. won't cover during the course of this interview, but certainly – now, um, I want to talk a little bit, there's various different aspects of your story, and I've kind of set up a segue on Facebook and other places about what's happened to you. But first, since we're on the uh, arena of politics, if I would pick your brain a little bit, if you don't mind. I'm just curious to get your take on this, because you obviously have oh, had no. experience. <laughs> don't say I don't know. You can say I don't want to answer if you want to. No, but I would say, cool- oh, no, I can't wait to hear what this is. <laughs> Well, no, one of the coolest parts about coming on my show is I, I am a true blue journalist. So obviously I like to get to the heart of the matter and we like to talk about things that are poignant. You know, your whole story is poignant and it brings to light some very, very serious issues. So I just want to get your take on, because this, this has influenced you, obviously, of course, you have survived an attack of a terrorist nature. So now we look at the year 2017 and we have a new administration. Yeah. So I'm just curious, because you're impacted so much by terrorism and, and the choices that are made and how we deal with that and what goes on. 
how confident do you feel that we are going to be able to conquer, maybe not necessarily terrorism as a whole, but do you feel that we're getting more of a heavier handle on it, being a survivor of something like this? So for me, always, um, in any political arena, safety and security of this country and other countries is definitely my top concern and probably one of the, the driving forces of any of where I would put any of my political um, views. And I've seen a lot, not necessarily here in the U.S., but, but internationally, and, and I've spoken in Europe and in South America, and, and just right. I've had more awareness of what's really going on. And I think that the biggest problem I see in this country is that we don't take it serious if it's ever going to happen here again. And so there's this very, um, this attitude of, um, you know, it's not going to happen to me or my family, and it's not my problem. And that's the attitude we can't have because we are susceptible just like anywhere else in the world. And I think right. that we need to start realizing that we need to not just leave it up to the politicians and the first responders to take action, but we as citizens need to be aware of what's going on. You know, in New York City all the time they have these things in the subway that say, um, or on the buses, if you see something, say something. And I don't think many people do that. And I think that's, a, that's just indicative of the problem of, of how we're living here in this country and how big this country is that there are things that could happen and we don't even realize that, oh, when something does happen, we don't take it seriously enough. And, you know, I don't agree with how things were phrased and how words were used, but when we talk about, like, for example, a travel ban, I don't think there should be a travel ban. I think that every single individual, whether you're an American or somebody who's not American, everyone needs to be vetted when they leave this country and come back to this country, even myself. I'd rather they take the time to make sure that, uh, that it's safe than to have something slip through the cracks and for something to happen. And most people don't agree Man. with that. But I think that we have to start thinking that we live in a different world today. Um, and there is... And, and there's so much going on of radicalization and indoctrination of young people, and people don't realize that this is happening, and that there are currently, as we speak, things going on here in the U.S. that they're like, oh, there's no terrorist cells in the U.S. Well, there are, and we have to be more responsive to it and be more proactive than just sitting back and saying it's not going to happen. And so while I don't believe the wording is the wording I would use, I do believe that stronger measures need to be taken. I think that in the previous administration, there weren't strong enough measures taken, um, and there were instances of things that happened that, that definitely, I think, um, detrimental to us as a country in terms of safety and security. Um, and I do have contact and have spoken with people in the State Department about it because I think it's something that they need to hear even if they disagree with it. But the fact that um, myself as a victim of terrorism, as a survivor, we need to have a voice. And we have lived it, and we know what's happened. And when you don't know about it and when you haven't lived through it, you can't even imagine the long-term impact of what that means not only for you but for your family and for people that you know. And so I just think that while people, people are focusing on all the bad things that are happening, I think we need to kind of refocus and pri prioritize what needs to be done here to protect our country more because what we're seeing, we're 10 years behind Europe in terms of what's going on. So the stuff like Manchester and Brussels and all these attacks that are happening, if right. we don't start doing something more here, we're going to be in worse shape than where they are right now. 
And I just don't think people take that seriously enough. Understood. And, and great answer, as a matter of fact, yes, because obviously all of us are consistent. I think we all have a base consistency as it relates to being concerned and wondering what can we do as a human being in terms of being proactive in this. And we'll get into that, obviously. But thank you for that response, actually. Um, before we start talking about the incident that you were particularly involved in, I think that we should mention this because this is vitally important, and especially because of the day it is today, clearly, because we get closer and closer to the incident and anniversary of 911. So I know that at yeah. one point in time you work near the World Trade Center. And so obviously, yeah. again, we want to speak a bit about 911. And I think oftentimes, and I've heard you speak about this before, and maybe if you would to my audience, I'd appreciate it, which is um, talking about the impact that that had, meaning obviously you worked right within that realm. And fortunately for us, nothing happened to you in that particular regard. But um, the, I think that sometimes people take for granted that so much loss of life occurred and it wasn't and I don't mean to be vain about this or or, or um, naive about it, there are first responders involved. There are, are millions of lives all, all over the world that are sacrificed when any uh. sort of terrorist activity goes on. So let's talk about a bit about that. Uh, I hope that you did not lose anyone to 911 at the World Trade Center that you knew or that you that you were friends with or loved ones, et cetera. And um, maybe speak about your take in terms of the World Trade Center and that incident, et cetera, and, and how that affected you, especially because you were so nearby. Yeah, I mean, that day definitely impacted me. I lived in Manhattan um, on the Upper West Side, and that morning I overslept. So I wasn't at my office, which was a few blocks away. But I did when I did turn on the television to see the weather outside, I saw the towers burning, and I immediately called the office, and I heard screaming in the background, and somebody said, we're being evacuated. We don't know what happened. The building shook. Um, and uh, and we, weren't, we couldn't get back to work for a number of weeks. And when we finally did get to work, um, I couldn't get off at my subway stop because it was completely destroyed. And we had to get off about 12 blocks from the office. And as I was walking down there, for the first few days, I would see crowds of people um, near Wall Street. And one day I tapped somebody on the shoulder and I said, I see you guys here every day. You're blocking the sidewalks. What's going on? What are you waiting for? And, and the guy said, oh, we're here to take a picture of where the World Trade Center used to stand. And I just thought this is not the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty. People are still looking for their loved ones. There are people still, you know, with signs, with pictures of people's faces. And you're here as if it's a tourist site. And I got really upset about it. Um, And within the coming weeks, I made some decisions. And in December of 2001, I quit my job. And I moved to Israel to volunteer with organizations that were working with victims of terrorism. Right. And what a noble thing to do, obviously. And plus, too, I would think... Wouldn't, wouldn't it have kind of marred you in a certain way? I mean, wouldn't you have been more shaken, I would guess? Because I'm thinking to myself, I don't know how people sustain their meaning after knowing that you could have been victim to something like that. How do you manage to live like that? Could you have stayed where you lived? Meaning, would Correct. you feel that you would have been okay with that? I mean, again, I, I think that I, I think I would have dealt with it however I did, but I chose to deal with it in terms of, right. in terms of this way. Um, I think that, you know, plenty of people went back to work afterwards downtown and, and life resumed. But for thousands of people that were impacted that day, their lives were changed forever. Um, exactly. And I and just think that that's... It's just such a sad travesty, obviously, of course. And it goes without saying now, every year that goes by, I think that we have... Do you feel, and again, another question, because, of course, I don't mean to pick your brain, but, you know, there are just some things that I think about and I think that are so pertinent for us to talk about. Like, for instance... 
ever since the wake of 9-11 and hopefully even before that a bit, there have been some drastic changes, whether you fly, whether you go to uh, public places, et cetera. Again, do you feel we are continuing to safeguard ourselves enough against those who wish to do us harm? Or do you think we could take it a step farther? Do you think we still need to do that just in safety precautions, you know, because we have absolutely. I mean, people get annoyed. I know when I fly and, and I'm a terrible flyer. I hate flying, but I do it all the time. And I, people get so sure. frustrated during security checks and I oh, am right. stopped every single time without a doubt. And that's okay. I don't really? mind being stopped. I'd rather they be safe, but yeah, every time. Oh. Um, oh. Yeah, it, I go off. It could be the shrapnel from the attack that's in me. It could be a number of different right. things. Oh, but right. I always, I I'm, I'm always going off. And I always tell people when they're getting angry in the line, I say to them, listen, better to be safe than sorry. I said, I, I would say that outwardly. I was in a bus bombing 14 years ago. I want this to be safe. And people, their mouths drop for a second because what are they going to say back to you? But the truth is that people need to hear that because I rather I get to the airport early. I'm not I don't want to rush. I don't want to get myself crazy sure. before because of the fact of security. So I will always get there earlier. Um, and people just need to realize that these people are not doing it to be mean. They're doing it to to protect you before you get up in the air. And I remember a TSA guy once said to somebody, "Listen, I'm not I'm not going to be up there. You're the one taking that flight going up there." And it's true. We need to sort of realize that I think that they need to do a better job. I think they're not doing enough, honestly. I think there needs to be – it needs to be more. Well, and the other part of the equation I wanted to circle back a bit. Yeah. Because I fly a lot, too, as a matter of fact, and then I go there, and I am one of those typical people you talk about, which is, oh, my God, I'm standing here, and I'm waiting, and they're doing this and this. And you put a good perspective on that, because I think a lot of us are like that. Like, we just want to get through security, et cetera, et cetera. But if we step back and think about it realistically, there is a reason and a rhyme and a mean for why they do all of those things. So, for instance, let's say one of us is in an airport, or let's say one of us is out in a public place. What would you recommend if we if we start to see what we consider to be suspicious behavior or maybe notice that something's a little off? Um, would you say to us automatically, you need to find somebody, you need to let them know, et cetera? Because I know some people Absolutely. have said, oh, it was nothing. You know, because some people might be Absolutely. a little that same thing. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of what Better safe than sorry, and what's the worst that's going to happen? They're gonna right. they're gonna go and see and see that's fine. If you didn't say something, and that and that was a problem, how would you feel afterwards if you were responsible because you didn't say something to somebody? Gotcha. No, I agree with you. 100%. I just think we don't take it seriously enough in this country. We don't realize the the impact and the the long arm of terrorism and how and how difficult it is to to stop things if people are not going to be proactive. Right. I agree with you. I definitely do. Now, obviously, we'd like to talk about the incident that occurred to you. So I guess what I should say, because I know that you talk about this extensively um, and often, so I guess maybe talk to us about what happened to you and whatever makes you comfortable, because I certainly don't want to make you rehash it over and over and over again. Um, No, not at all. I'm happy to, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to answer any questions. Wonderful. Okay. Well, obviously, of course, to those that are listening in that may not know, you were on bus 14 in Jerusalem, and there was a Palestinian terrorist that was on the bus itself, obviously, with the result being 17 dead and over 100 different injuries. So if you would, please, um, tell us why you were there, obviously, what made you get on there, what was your purpose or reasoning for being there, of course, and then try to describe as best as you can for us 
because um, I imagine there's a bunch of emotions that go on there and, and a good number of fear. And, and just kind of take us through that experience with you as best as you can. Sure. So I, um, I had already been there a year and a half. Uh, I had volunteered the first 10 months while I was there, and then I was about to leave when I was offered a job. Um, so I worked from 8 to 2 every day. Um, and I took two buses to work and two buses home. And on that particular day, I had meetings all over Jerusalem. And so I took cabs everywhere. And I rarely took cabs because I didn't make a large salary. So I usually took the bus everywhere. But on this day, I really needed to take cabs everywhere. And when I ended up at my office, I went into the office at 2 o'clock, even though that's when I usually leave because I hadn't been there all day. And I remember that I was meeting a friend for dinner about a five-minute walk from my apartment, and I wasn't sure what bus to take to get there. So I called her up, and I asked her what bus to take. And she said she told me exactly where I could catch the number 14 bus, and it would take me right into the street of where the restaurant was. So at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I started and took the first bus to the central bus station. Uh, and then after I got off that bus, I went to look for the 14 bus stop, which I found. But at that point, it had started to become really hectic rush hour, and the bus was running late. And as I went to go hail a cab, I didn't have any money on me, but I figured I would stop at an ATM because I didn't want to be late to my friend. But as I went to go hail the cab, I saw the bus coming. So I decided to get on the bus. When I first got on the bus, there were no empty seats, and I was really tired. So I stood by the back door, holding onto the pole, which is really the middle of the bus. Uh, and we pulled up to the next bus stop, which was, uh, which was the marketplace. Uh, I saw two seats open up in the front section on the right side near me, and I decided to sit down. Uh, normally, I would have taken the aisle seat because at the marketplace, a lot of older people get on with packages. And... If I were to take the aisle seat, if I needed to get up for somebody to sit, I would have done that. And I don't know why, but on that day, I ended up taking the window seat. And if I didn't take that window seat, 200%, I wouldn't be here. Um, and basically, as, we, as I sat down, I remember the girl who sat down next to me and her boyfriend was standing. The bus was very crowded. Um, there were lots of people getting out at the marketplace. It was at the end of the day when people were coming home from work and picking up groceries and and. Uh, people were trying to get on the bus, and at some point, the bus driver had to close the bus to get going uh, because that bus stop had a lot of different buses that went through there. And as we started moving, I had my cell phone on me, which in 2003, the cell phones didn't look like they do today. They're much bigger, and I didn't want to hold it. So I went to put my cell phone in my knapsack, and I lifted my knapsack from the floor, and I was looking down as I opened the knapsack to put the phone in when all of a sudden I felt a huge shockwave hit my face. Um, and the only way I can explain the shockwave, it's like two pieces of metal that hit so hard against each other, other and vibrate back. That's what I remember my face feeling like. And mm -hmm. I was trying to lift my hands up, and my hands were being pushed down. My body was being pushed against the back of the seat. Um, I didn't think it was a terrorist attack. I thought that we had gotten into a bus accident or that somebody had hit me in the face with something. But the last thing that I thought was that somebody boarded that bus strapped with explosives to hurt and murder innocent people. And when the blast stopped, I couldn't open my left eye at all because something had already hit it and it was swollen shut. And my right eye, I could barely open just enough to see the roof of the bus had fallen in and the man's head in front of me and he wasn't moving. And right after the blast, there's a split second of silence. And I always explain mm -hmm. it. It's not really the silence that you hear in the summertime when the crickets are out, but it's literally the silence of death all around you. It's a split second, but it feels like so much longer. And then after that silence, my ears started ringing really loud and I started screaming. 
and luckily I was screaming because there was a guy outside that heard me. He had been three blocks mm-hmm. away. He heard the blast, and he came running towards the bus. And it always reminds me of 9-11 when I was watching on television and seeing that we as civilians are taught that if there's an emergency or something's wrong, we need to go and get to safety and look the problem. But in Israel, it doesn't matter if you're the police or the fire department. Everybody comes running to help because you're in need. You're a human being, and life is that important. And this guy didn't know what he heard. He heard something, and he just came running. Um, and he came towards the bus that was already um, that was already completely uh, mangled and burned and stuff. And what ended up happening was he ended up um, he ended up telling me I needed to get out of the bus. And I told him I couldn't, and he said, put your feet up on this bar, which I thought was the window, but it was really the bottom of the bus that had blown out from the impact of the blast. And mm-hmm. he pulled me to the side of the road where another woman waited with me until I was put into the ambulance and taken to the hospital. I was taken to Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem. Um, I was probably the first, one of the first people to arrive, and I was the least of the seriously wounded. So I was the last person that night to go into surgery of the seriously wounded. Um, I had shrapnel that went through my left shoulder, breaking my clavicle bone. Both my eardrums were blown from the impact of the blast. My hair was burned. My face was burned and bruised. My legs were badly cut up, probably from metal from the bus. Um, I have shrapnel in my mouth that's inoperable, and that's lucky. Because as you mentioned, on that day, there were 17 innocent people that were murdered, including all those seated and standing around me. So I know that if I didn't take that aisle seat, if I didn't take that window seat, I wouldn't be here because the girl who sat next to me didn't make it. Her boyfriend who was standing did not. They said, based on where the proximity of the people that were killed, the two people standing away from where I was seated. That's pretty close. Um, And uh, I went to surgery that night and uh, came up the next morning, did a press conference with uh, about 30 international television and radio stations, and then my dad arrived um, with my brother from the States. Gotcha. I have a couple questions relative to this, obviously. Sure. Um, um, I'm going to venture to guess it's a foregone conclusion that every moment of every day and every breath of life has become significantly more precious than it was before. I would venture to guess. Absolutely. Um, second of all, and forgive me because it's not 100% clear, am I to presume that the individual responsible for this action was uh, caught and prosecuted? I guess I'm not clear on that, so I wasn't sure if you knew. No. So the, the so unfortunately, well, the, the terrorist was actually an 18-year-old kid. He was the eighth kid that year that was recruited by Hamas. He, had, he was a part of a Palestinian soccer team. And this, to me, I sure. talk about a lot is the idea that these young people are being radicalized and indoctrinated to carry out these attacks. And I, I just don't understand where all these human rights organizations are protecting the rights of these kids. No one is speaking for them. No one is trying to help. Um, and that's the real problem, that they're being violated every single time and a terrorist organization like Hamas comes in there and recruits them to carry out these attacks. Um, sure. And uh, he was a kid. Um, he did not survive, obviously. He was on the bus. And, um, but, uh, there were others that helped to help to plan the attack that were prosecuted, um, and are, are serving currently in jail and they should stay there the rest of their lives as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. Um, I guess that's a good question I should bring up, of course. 
Um, clearly, one of the things that happens is I'm sure we can have you elaborate on is there are a lot of things that you walk away from that experience from, and it's not just appreciation for life, but I would imagine just an influx of emotion. Um, and, of course, on a psychological and mental side of things, you have to learn how to cope and live with that on a regular basis, as do many others who have survived this. So I guess um, right. before you, this question I know it's a trick question, but it's not meant to be, but it, it does pose a very big significance, which is a lot of people talk about the first step in recovering from such a, an event or an incident that's tragic in your life is being able to forgive the person who has caused you wrongdoing. Have you been able to reconcile that in some way? So I don't believe you always have to forgive. I, it doesn't drive oh. my life. It doesn't impact it, but I don't believe we always have okay. to forgive. And I don't, I don't forgive those that indoctrinated that boy um, to carry out the attack. Uh, I don't think, I don't think I'm not full of hate that I don't hate anybody that day was all about hate. Um, And I always say that I had no control over um, what happened to me that day, but I do have control over how I live my life going forward. And I'm going to show the opposite of what that day was all about showing love and kindness to people. But I don't always believe we have to forgive. And I don't believe that forgiveness always brings about the reconciliation that somebody needs to get past what they've been through. Sometimes you can't forgive. That doesn't mean that you can't live your life doing good things and, and making sure that, you know, fighting for whatever happened to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. But I think that driving force of not forgiving is what makes me want to do the work that I'm doing because I don't want anyone else to go through what I've been through. Um, and unfortunately yeah. we say this is a club that none of us have to join, but the club is getting a lot larger and that's probably because of the fact that, you know, we just, we, we're not doing enough to stop what's happening in the world. I would agree with that. And then, of course, you, on your own initiative, engaged in starting Strength to Strength. And folks that, that are listening, this is a nonprofit which brings the victims of terrorist acts together to assist them with psychological care. So if you would please tell us. Uh, the individuals that you speak with and connect with, what are some of the things that you find that they experience most or what they need most? And how can we as the average person who've been blessed to not live through this do to facilitate or to help them with their healing or other things they may need? Well, I think the most important thing is that people need to realize, first of all, victims, there are victims all over the world from all different backgrounds, all different religions. And I think that the most important thing is that what we've been through, it doesn't matter where we're from or, or what religion we are. It's the idea that we've been through something that bonds us for life. And we share an experience, even though it might be a little bit different, we share an experience that we can understand each other. And so for victims, it's really important to connect with other victims. While, while uh, therapies and different, you know, different types of therapies are always important, and a lot of the victims we work with are doing multiple things via you know, um, regular therapy to acupuncture to Reiki to EMDR and all these different types of, uh, of tools, I think connecting with somebody else who's been through the experience um, and, and really, you know, uh, post-traumatic growth from the experience. And so what we try and do is, and we're an all-volunteer-driven organization, so 
nobody is paid because I didn't want it to be that, you know, whatever funds we raise wouldn't go directly towards the program and the services that we're providing. But we partner with organizations in 12 different countries around the world who are already mm-hmm. on the ground working with victims themselves. And we build a platform where victims can come together, share experiences with each other, and then hopefully help each other move forward. And that's not just the actual victim themselves, but it's the entire family unit. It's not just the oh, person sure. that was impacted, but it could be everybody in their family. Um, and the idea that we're all coming together to combat the hate and the best way for somebody who's been through a terrorist attack to, you know, combat what they've been through is to live their life and move forward. And so that's really what we're doing. We're helping people by having really building a community of support for them and making sure they know that they're not alone and that they have people that understand what they've been through. Because as much as we work with our, our trauma experts who are really the ones we work with are incredible, each and every one of them who have experience in this field, we know best what the other person is feeling because we've been through it. So the idea of that peer-to-peer support, I think, is crucial for victims. So what we look for is for people to help us to keep our programs going by donating to us, um, helping sometimes we have volunteers in New York who help us run some of the programs. We have somebody on September 10th in the UK who's running a, a race and raising funds for us to help other kids who have been through terrorism. So it's really just the idea of people helping us to continue our programs and make them as successful as possible. We have more people wanting to come to things. We have a, a weekend retreat we just did last weekend, not this past weekend, the weekend before in Boston for some Boston Marathon survivors and some 9-11 survivors. Um, I was in London this summer at the anniversary of the London bombings. We run a a program every morning uh, before the memorial ceremony where we have any of the survivors or bereaved family members that want to come together. We we rent out a space where there's breakfast and they can just relax and then walk across the street to where the ceremony takes place. And then we had a luncheon afterwards Um, on 9-11 coming up next week. After the ceremony, we have a luncheon for some of our survivors and bereaved family members. And then we have a dinner that night. Um, We have an upcoming weekend retreat in November with people from all across the country who have been impacted by terrorism in places like Mumbai, Uganda, Kenya, as well as Oklahoma City, San Bernardino, Boston, 9-11, Israel. So it's really a lot. You don't realize it, but the person that could be next to you, even though they look okay on the outside, they could have survived an attack anywhere in the world. And so we're just kind of bringing people together and giving them an opportunity to have the support they need to be able to go forward. Gotcha. No, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on here. There's a couple different elements that I saw you offer through Strength is a Strength, one of which touched me a great deal, which is Color Tall's Camel. That yes, was very moving. did that actually in Boston. Um, um, basically, uh, my friend's that. daughter was killed. Yeah, my, my friend. My friend Ron Cameron from Haifa, his daughter Tal was 17 years old. She was actually um, a few months shy of graduating high school. It was March 2003, and she was on her way home from school, and uh, a terrorist boarded the bus that she was on. There were lots of kids on the bus that day, and Tal loved camels. She was very artistic, and her father found in her diary this camel that she had sketched, but she never completed. 
So he photocopied mm-hmm. the camel and he's asking people all over the world, especially young people, to use your creativity and finish what Tal couldn't, color Tal's camel. And there's, and what we do is usually when I speak in schools, which I've spoken to a lot of elementary and high school kids across the country, when I speak in the schools, I'll talk about this program, and then we have the students who do the project. And so I spoke at a school in, in April, and I told them that I was going to Israel in July, and uh, 600 kids in that school colored Tal's camel, and I brought all the camels. Uh, to Israel Colored, and they will be scanned and put up in a web, on a website that's in Tal's memory, which has over 12,000 camels that have been colored from all over the world. And it's just the idea that Tal's memory lives on through each and every kid that colors her camel. Exactly right. The other thing I want to mention is I noticed that you had a um, – you were in the process of doing the Victims Advisory Council. Is that completely set up now, or are you still in process of that? So we have people that have joined it. It's a matter of people's time and and commitment. But basically the advisory council is just a place where victims are survivor-driven. It's the idea that when somebody wants to do something, we'll make it happen if they think it's a good idea. So we have a lot of programs that are going to be initiated in the coming months because of our survivors that have suggested them from the victims' council. That And the survivor circle, obviously, we know that that's in existence, and that is specific to the survivors as well. And the other thing is, I, I love the fact that you've incorporated the youth, meaning you have a youth executive division as well as a young ambassador program. If there are youth Correct. listening today, um, does it matter where they live? Does it matter what they do, et cetera? Are they able to qualify? Uh, can they participate so, in either one of these programs? Yeah, so our young executive division are our young professionals. Um, that have either just graduated college or have been out of college for a number of years who want to engage in helping us not only to fundraise for our programs, but also to meet and interact with some of the people that we're working with. And they're very instrumental in our Young Ambassadors program, which is a program that we run where we bring together young people ages 14 to 20 who've either lost a family member in a terrorist attack, a family member has been injured, or they themselves have been injured in an attack. And we bring them to New York City for a week. Uh, The kids come from about eight different countries usually each year. Again, it depends which countries sign up and are able to. Sometimes some of the countries like Kenya and Uganda will have issues with visas and getting out of the country for the program, and we try to work very hard to do that. But basically, we bring about 20 young people together each program, and our young professionals interact with them. And they get to see and talk with somebody who's a few years ahead of them, who may have their life a little bit more settled, but they can go to for advice and ask them about what, you know, what they should do. And a lot of the young people from our program that come out of it, they come back wanting to actually do more and have a better sense of what they want to do professionally just from that week of interacting, not only with the young professionals, but just being in New York City and interacting with other young kids their age who have been through an attack somewhere else in the world and knowing that they're not alone and they have a support system. And what we really set up is a global peer support group for them because after the program ends, that's just the beginning for the kids of their connection. And this past program in April we ran, what the amazing part was it in June, two of the participants who lived here in New York, one lost um, – One lost her uncle in 9-11. Another one survived a terrorist attack in Israel. They both flew out to Ireland to visit the participants that came from Ireland and from the U.K. Um, So they took a two-week vacation. And then in July, two of our participants here, one who lives in Oklahoma City who lost her dad in 9-11, and one participant who also survived an attack in Israel, they flew out to the U.K. to visit one of the uh, participants 
who survived the Tunisia terrorist attack two years ago, who was on the program. So these kids are staying in touch and, that, and really connecting with each other and finding support within each other that is, is life-changing for them, to know that they have somebody there that really understands what they've been through and that they could talk to about it. And so our Young Professionals Division is really instrumental in spending time with them and being role models for them and really showing them what they can do going forward. Now, before I forget to mention, um, if those of you are listening, because I know you speak to schools, you've done events before, you've gone to religious uh, organizations, uh, how flexible are you? Meaning if somebody's listening in today and they walk away from this experience and think, I want Nikki to call, or excuse me, I want you, to, is it Siri or sorry? I want to make sure that I pronounce your name correctly. Sorry. You're good. As long as <laughs> If they want you to come and participate, how flexible are you? Because obviously I imagine you've been bouncing around all over the place. I see all the different places you've made other appearances. Um, are, are you able and accessible for the most part if, if folks are interested? Absolutely. And I make myself accessible because I think right. that it's important that people hear these stories and that I feel like every time I share my story, I'm sharing the story of those 17 innocent people that didn't make it home that day to their families, and their memory stays alive. And there was an American who was murdered on, on my bus. His name was Alan Deere, originally from Cleveland, and I'm very close with his family. And uh, even, I mean, I, I feel like every time I'm speaking, I'm, I'm speaking and keeping Alan's memory alive as well as everyone else. And so it's important that people hear these stories and that people have, that victims have a voice in this realm. And even for the over 100 people that were injured, a lot of them can't share their stories. So for those of us that can talk about it, we need to be the voice. We need to make people remember that this is not just an isolated incident, but this is something that happens all the time, unfortunately, all over the world, even if we don't hear about it in the news. And we need to be doing as much as we can to make sure that we are trying to stop terrorism. So I'm, I'm happy to go anywhere and everywhere to speak. Oh, my goodness. Well, I could go on and on and talk to you all day, but I do know that you have a scheduled commitment of 45 minutes today. So this is what I would I like do. to say <laughs> before I forget. Because once you get off the air, just so you know, if you give it about two hours, I'll forward over to you uh, our interview as well as I'll put it on YouTube so there's more access. I'm going to read off to folks after you're off the air all the ways to find you, your websites, all the different pages to find you, all the places that you've been before. But this is what I do want to say to you in closing before I let you go, which is two different things. First of all, when I started, I hope, and, and literally what I meant what I said, I could go on another two hours talking to you. It isn't very often in life that I find someone who's not only a survivor in life, but you've taken a tragedy and you've turned it into triumph. I know that that's a poor way of putting it, but it's the best way in that you've touched so many more lives than a terrorist will ever take down. And they don't. what they don't realize is as long as you keep hope and love alive in your heart, terrorists don't win. They just don't. Exactly. So this is what exactly. I want to say to you. Um, it's not very often that a guest makes me cry, and you wouldn't know it, but you have. And cry in the best way possible, which means that I have someone to look up to, someone to keep my hope and my faith in. And Lastly, I don't want to forget to mention this. I will be in New York City. I am holding a film festival this year. One of the screenplays that's in competition is specific to a terrorist um, incident. So if you feel comfortable and if you're in the area at the end of October, I would love it if you would come and speak to my audience. I would absolutely love it. I would love it. I would absolutely love it. Well, I was afraid to ask. I'm like, she's going to sit and say, hell no, and that's going to be the end of that. But you totally did not. (laughs) So when I send over... When I send over all the interview stuff, I'll send over information about the festival and we'll see if we can coordinate the dates and things like that because I would just, I would be so honored. I cannot thank you enough for the work that you do to help preserve the lives of so many people. I don't think you realize 
just how much you do. And, and I consider you to be a blessing, and I thank God that you spared your life. And then hopefully thank those you. people up in heaven recognize what you've done for them. You're wonderful. Thank, thank you, you so much, so much thank for making you. the time. Thank you for having me on the I'm show. I'm just glad you came. Oh, of course. And, and know this much. <laughs> I realize, of course, today you're on a time deadline, but know that you can go back anytime you want. It's not like I'm shutting the door. Oh, Feel thanks. free to come back. We can do another show. Stay in touch. Let me know. I would love okay. to. Okay. Sounds great. All right, dear. Sounds great. You, thank you so much for coming out, and I'll talk to you soon. I'll send you all that stuff as soon as I can. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful right. day. You too, dear. Bye-bye. See, folks, this is, like, not nearly enough, and I feel absolutely terrible, only because of the, the um, I know it was going to be tough when we had the 45 minutes because her story is just so inspirational and moving and touching, and there's just so many words I can't even put it into words. So if you're intrigued or interested or if you can volunteer, if you can donate, if the services that she has listed are something that you or a family member can take advantage of, let me just tell you where to find her. Her first name is Sari, and it's S-A-R-R-I. Her last name is Singer, just like the actual S-I-N-G-E-R. She has two different places to find her on Facebook. She has a personal page. And then, of course, her organization, again, is called Strength to Strength, and that's on Facebook. Two different websites. Her organization is, uh, again, Strength to Strength, but of course the website is stosglobal.org. Her actual website personally for her is Sari, S-A-R-R-I, Singer, S-I-N-G-E-R, SariSinger.com. Her Instagram is S-A-R-R-I-S 97. She can be found on YouTube, LinkedIn, and then her Twitter is at, and her name again, which is Sari Singer. She's also on Vimeo as well, actually. So definitely take the time to go out and check out the website. Again, it's called Strength to Strength. Go ahead and make it a point to check out some of the different places. She has had appearances on CNN, Fox, CBS. She has spoken at the UN, the UK Parliament, the Terror Conference, which was in Brussels, which she had prefaced before, and, of course, the Congress for Victims of Terrorism as well. Um, Certainly, the other thing is she is also connected, meaning her company is connected to the board of the International Federation of Association of Victims of Terrorism. That's a whole lot to talk about. So definitely go ahead and check out what she has done through there. And again, we mentioned um, if you have a child that's interested in doing the color camel, color cal's camel, visit her website to be able to figure out or find out, I should say, how you can participate in that. There is a survivor's circle. There is also the victims' advisory council, which she has listed, of course, on the website as well. And then to those that are youth uh, that are interested in either the executive division or the ambassadors program. All this is on the website as well as being able to reserve a spot with her to come to your school or your religious organization or to any event that you have to speak publicly. She does a tremendous job, as you can see, and, um, and I meant every word I said. It's, it's not very often I get a chance to have a hero and someone who is so empowering and so real and raw about their experiences. So, God, thank you so much for sparing her life so she can inspire the lives of so many others. We send out our love and our prayers and our blessings to all of those that were lost that day and those that are lost every day by the hands of terrorist activity. And certainly if you want to get involved, she is always welcome to donations and volunteers. I don't want to forget to mention, if it was not for the good work and efforts of Candace Schaefer, this interview would not be happening. So Candace, hopefully you got a chance to listen into the show. Uh, you will at some point, I hope, because I'll be sending these copies to you. But thank you so much for connecting me with such an inspiring and uh, motivating and magical, wonderful person in Syria. I was very impressed and very moved by her story. And hopefully I did your uh, client justice because she's absolutely amazing. I would have her back on in a heartbeat. So folks, as I said one more time, the website is stosglobal.org. Her personal website is sarisinger.com. Her Instagram is sarris97. 
two places on Facebook are uh, her personal page and, of course, the organization you want to remember is Strength to Strength. She is on YouTube, LinkedIn, Vimeo, and, of course, her Twitter handle is at Sari Sanger. Excuse me, at Sari Singer. I cannot talk today, and I don't know why. It must be that I'm overtired. If you read me on Facebook, you already know I, Mrs. Insomnia was up at the crack of dawn, obviously. Reminder one more time for the future shows. Obviously, Tony Chen is going to be coming on the show tomorrow, and that's courtesy of Rachel Darius at Big Hype Marketing. That's BigHypeMarketing.com. You can check her out. Tony Chen, if you want to see some of his work, it's TonyChenMusic.com. He'll be on the show tomorrow afternoon. And then, of course, Nikki Neariton, which we mentioned, which is Nikki and the Human Element. is her band, New York City gal who's doing her best and hardest to try to help the homeless while creating a musical career for herself. And if you want to check her out, the website itself is Nikki, and that's N-I-K-K-I, and that's humanelement.com. Now, she's scheduled for 4 o'clock Central Standard Time, which is 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on Thursday. So, as I said, if you couldn't make today's show, the next two shows are coming up. There's a couple events that are going on that I do not want to forget to mention before I sign off today. First of all, the Women's um, Film Festival is coming into town. This is the precursor, of course, to the actual Milwaukee Film Festival. So it's called the Milwaukee Women's Film Festival. Myself and the founder just connected this last week, ironically, because, um, just so you know, folks, the entire festival starts on September 8th, runs through September 10th. All of this goes on at the Underground Collective. I know that most of you have been there and probably don't remember what it is. If you go inside the Grand Avenue Mall, downstairs on that bottom platform, it's actually address 161 West Wisconsin, but most of us know it as the Grand Avenue. If you go to the bottom level of the Grand Avenue, it's called the Underground Collaborative. From the 8th to the 10th, the entire festival is going on. It's just an array. It's all about women, for women, to empower women, giving them both strength and to a voice. As I've mentioned 90% of the time that I encourage all filmmakers, whether they're males, females, or otherwise, but it's not very often that you have an entity or an event that showcases movies about women that are created by women. Um, Obviously, of course, she doesn't want to forget to mention that, yes, male directors can go ahead and they can submit information, and obviously it's a little late, But by and large, this is showcasing and celebrating women, which is what I'm so excited about. So I just got my press pass, so I wanted to make sure to make it a point to let everybody know that this was going on. So it's called the Milwaukee Women's Film Festival. I'll be talking about it today and the next day and the next day, of course. There's two different ways to go ahead and find information on this. First of all, if you go to eventbrite.com, you can go ahead and purchase original tickets, meaning that any of those, there's a listing literally of every single film that's going on for the entire weekend. So basically, you just click on a particular one, meaning the opening night to the closing night, etc. And there's particular tickets in range from $10 all the way up to $1,000, depending on what you're doing. So if you go to eventbrite.com, you can go ahead and automatically get information and get your tickets for whatever showing that you want to go to. If by some particular chance, instead you want to just walk up and get tickets, that's fine too, because to the best of my knowledge, she is able, and I don't think she's going to be sold out. The actual film festival website itself is www.filmgirlfilm.com. On there, if you go on there, you'll see the festival, a list of the films, a list of the judges about the festival, what the motivation was behind it, of course, etc. And of course, you get a chance to see all different kinds of things. She's got animated movies on there. She's got drama. She's got some comedy. So she's got a nice little array of things going on. So please make it a point to go ahead and check out the Milwaukee Women's Film Festival, if you would, September 8th up until September 10th. Yeah, excuse me. Now, before I forget, I, I suppose I should toot my own horn for about two or three minutes since I have a little time. I want to remind everybody that very, very, very quickly I decided to put together this um, event, and I can't believe I'm doing it, but 
if you live in Milwaukee, you already know that we are in the crux of the Milwaukee Film Festival. It starts on September 28th and runs through mid-October. If you listen to my show or you follow me, you already know that my film festival in New York City is at the end of October. So what I thought to cheer myself up and find something inspiring to do is I would take all the films that I'm showcasing in New York City, minus most of the directors, meaning I won't have a whole lot of Q&A, do three industry panels instead of five and incorporate a little bit of live music and put together a quick two-day celebration of art and cinema. And I've literally called it a celebration of art and cinema. It's a two-day event, which basically is I'm showcasing 22 to 24 different films, a couple of which you will not see in New York City, bringing it here to Milwaukee so not only can people go ahead and check out the films, but they can be part of industry panels. Milwaukee filmmakers can submit and each screening is only costing either $5 or otherwise a day passes $20 for two particular days. So if you're interested, I have a site on Wix which is called Celebrate Art in Cinema, and that's all one word. So basically if you typed in or if you type in Wix, W-I-X.com, type in Celebrate Art in Cinema, you'll be able to find it. That's a listing of all the different screenings, the dates. Oh, well, I haven't put the dates. I apologize. But all of the different films will be on there as well as the industry panels and step prices on there, and it has an advanced link to purchase tickets. Right now we are shooting for the date of September 27th and 28th because the 28th is the start of the Milwaukee Film Festival. So pay attention to the event page, meaning that the website is there. We also have a Facebook page with the same name, which is an evening to celebrate art and cinema. Visit that page. That will give you the same information, the advanced ticket links, and I'll be able to tell you where the location is and the times for everything. So go ahead and check that out. Don't forget, if you haven't ordered your comic book already, Sergeant Seizure and the Evil Dr. Cuckoo is now available. And don't forget, I'll be starting to do interviews and press for Art of the Live Zone Festival, which is going to be starting as of next week. And as you all know, that's at the end of October, very last week of the month in New York City at the Producers Club. I want to say a big, grand thanks to everybody that's been listening in today. Um, thank you so much for the prayers and support about my going to drop my kids off today, because yes, I did cry. It's one of those things. You never get used to it. Even now that they're in middle school, it's just one of those things. So thanks so much to everybody that listened in today. Thanks again to Candace Schaefer for setting this up. Thanks again to Sari Singer for coming on the show and telling her story. And I look forward to talking to you guys tomorrow. Have a wonderful Tuesday afternoon. Take care.